we three, we're all alone, living in a memory, my echo, my shadow, and me. and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, where we go back to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every week on chrisandreggie.podbean.com every Sunday day. This one's coming out a little later in the day than we might have liked. And you can also subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and by the Shades of the Seraphim. Aha, yeah, we got, got, this is our last week of Marvel March. It is. So yes, and this is going to be a request uh, for from uh, Ryan Douglas from our pals over at Columbus Comics Corner Podcast. I, I stumbled over that name like four times when I was yeah. <laughs> when I was trying to read it back because it's just so many C's. Well, I think but it's you, did, you, you did a great job. I think all the all the practice was worth it, Chris. Yes, yes. <laughs> I goggled, then I said it. Uh, and he wanted us to discuss any uh, classic defenders. So we figured we'd start at the start, even though it's not really the start. Uh-huh. But but it is the start of the volume. This is Defenders number one. Uh, title, I Slay by the Stars. Cover date, August 1972. Written by Steve Englehart. Art by Sal Buscema. Inked by Frank Giacola. Lettered by Artie Simak. And had a cover price of 20 cents USD. Oh boy, that was uh, practically nothing in those days. So mm-hmm. we'll do our uh, usual bio shtick, but if this guy, uh, the fellow writing this is quite interesting, and it's going to have kind of a longer bio than we usually have on Cosmic Treadmill, I think. Uh, yes. His name is Steve Engelhart, born April 22, 1947, in, in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, he majored in psychology at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, and he was a member of the Kappa Alpha Society. He earned his Bachelor of Arts degree in 1969. Spent a short stint in the army, and from the looks of thing, it was it was less than a typical two-year enlistment, because the very next year, 1970, he moved to New York to break into comic books. We don't know. I I couldn't find out what happened with his short stint in the army, but it seems like it might have been like weeks. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, like or maybe a couple of months. I can't see how because if he graduated in '69, he's already in New sure. York in '70. I don't see how it could have been any other way. But anyway. We don't, I don't know. Um, but initially, he Steve did want to be an artist. His uh, first work in comics was as an art assistant to Neil Adams on a 10-page story by writer Denny O'Neill in Warren Publishing's Black and White Horror Comics magazine, Vampirella No. 10. That was in March 1971 cover date. Not a he, bad way to start. Not at all. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, this was, this was Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill were and already Daddy. the darlings of, uh, you know, comics by this time, so they were writing their own ticket. Um, he was briefly a member of the Krusty Bunkers, which is something I may need to look into closer sometime. Now, uh, this was a collective pseudonym of a group of comic book inkers clustered around Neil Adams and Dick Giordano's New York City-based art and design agency, Continuity Studios, from 1972 and 1977. A uh, few familiar names in there, but we're not going to get into that now. 
Steve began his career in words with a co-writing credit with Gardner Fox on the six-page Engelhart drawn retribution in Warren's Erie number 35, September 1971 cover date. It seems he liked the use of the old uh, pen there. He said, uh, I did want to be a comic book artist. That was the thing that I thought I was wanting to get to be. I had help from Neil Adams. I had help from Dick Giordano. There were a number of people, Vinnie Coletta too, who helped me in my struggling days as a young artist. I ended up on staff at Marvel, where I was doing art corrections, among other things. And one day, Gary Friedrich, who wrote Sergeant Fury in his Howling Commandos primarily, but also Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. and some other books, had a little monster story he didn't want to actually write. He was taking the summer off. Marvel was a bullpen in those days. Everything Stan Lee said about that was true in those days. It was a small group of people. And they kind of looked around and said, You there, Engelhart, sitting in the corner. Would you like to write this thing? I said, well, sure, because I wasn't going to turn down any chance at doing work for Marvel. Totally. Uh, Roy Thomas, who was the editor-in-chief of Marvel at the time, said, Engelhart became a summer replacement or some such for writer Gary Friedrich. When Gary wanted to go away for a while, he got Steve, who was sort of a young aspiring artist when he came up to Neil Adams' studio, and he ended up at Marvel as a proofreader. Then he wanted to write, and I believe he wrote a few pages of a sample script. Anyway, I gave him The Beast and Amazing Adventures to try out on, and that worked out pretty well. Now, Steve says when he arrived, the Marvel bullpen was kind of in disarray. Uh, he's quoted, There really weren't. When I started, uh, Stan was still the editor-in-chief, though that was more of a title than actual function. He knew he was winding up his comic book career, and he was looking forward to getting out to California and trying out movies and stuff like that. In fact, I did overlap him for six months, but Roy was the de facto editor, and then he got the title in addition to everything else. And still, uh, Steve Englehart appreciated Roy Thomas's uh, influence in the creative process. Steve would say, Roy and Denny O'Neill, when they had to come to work for Stan, uh, Stan uh, had really taken, taken them over the coals trying to get them to write like him. Since he had uh, been writing everything, there was a sound to Marvel books that was very defined at that point. He wanted both Roy and Denny to be able to emulate him. I didn't know this at the time, but when Roy took over, Roy decided on his own that he was going to let the people working for him find their own voice. So he did, uh, he did give us complete freedom. You had to make sure the books sold well enough, and you had to turn in the stuff on time. You couldn't screw up the deadlines. But assuming you did that, he sort of let people go. When I found out about that later, I was sort of in awe of the balls it took to say, we're going to let Marvel not have to sound like Stan all the time. There was a Marvel sound, and we all tried to work around that sound. But it did allow me to do whatever I did and, and Steve Gerber to go off on his sort of quirky direction. And Don McGregor and other people, Jerry Conway, Len Wein, uh, Marv Wolfman, everybody got to do their own version of the thing. The longer we did it, the more we became a less a lesser version of Stan and more a version of ourselves, which I totally thank Roy for allowing us to do. Yeah, it's worth saying, too, for people that don't know, Roy Thomas, he began... Uh, really very briefly at DC and then pretty much yeah. immediately at Marvel and was Stanley's protege but he was pretty new to the comic industry even this time I think he started in 67 I want to say or 66 sure uh, yeah. and this is 70 still new. this is 70 71 he's already editor in chief things were moving very rapidly and that's probably another we'll detail that in a more Marvel podcast but uh yeah so he he was green to this and uh, you know I think he used his you know newness to inject some kind of new life into Marvel or maybe that that's why he kind of took a back seat to 
uh, you know, edit, forcing people to write in a certain way or whatever. Sure. Anyway, uh, Steve also says his availability and versatility were an asset and why he was chis- chosen. He says, when Gary Friedrich's Sergeant Fury number 94 came in, de facto editor-in-chief Roy Thomas wanted major revisions in the script and had me do them. Evidently, he liked the result because right after that, Gary turned back a job he'd been holding on to, dialoguing a little story plotted by Al Hewitson, and Roy asked me to script it from scratch. That was the seven-page Terror of the Pterodactyl, drawn by Sid Shores on, in Monsters on the Prowl, number 15, for February 1972 cover date, and my first credited job. Over the next six months, even as my credited stories began to appear, I continued to do uncredited co- collaborations, sometimes by design and sometimes at the last minute. Now, some of this uncredited credited work includes Friedrich Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos, number 97, Iron Man, number 45, and The Incredible Hulk, volume 2, number 152, plus two romance stories and a Western tale. Yeah, then uh, Englehart would write uh, two romance stories under the pseudonym Anne Spencer in Our Love, number 18, cover date August 1972, and My Love, number 19, from September 1972. And then under his own name, a standalone supernatural story in the anthology series Journey into Mystery, volume 2, number 1, uh, cover date October 72. Uh, during his uh, first credited superhero work on a series starring erstwhile X-Men member The Beast in Amazing Adventures, volume 2, issues 12 through 17, which was uh, May of 72 through March of 73, uh, Englehart integrated the Patsy Walker character. Uh, who She was a star of a romantic series uh, in the Silver Age, a teen series, and uh, entered her right into the uh, Marvel Universe proper alongside the, uh, you know, the main cast of uh, characters. Mm-hmm. And uh, now she's uh, Patsy Walker Hel- Hellcat, <laughs> unless that series was canceled when we weren't paying attention. <laughs> I, I think... <laughs> that might have happened. Marvel sometimes does those sneak cancellations, you know, where it, one... it was always intended to be a miniseries. Right, exactly. Yeah, well, after after the fact. So I I can't guarantee. It. I know it was around recently, but I don't know if it's still around now. We could probably safely say within the next six months, Patsy Walker number one will be on a we'll show. <laughs> and then, then six months after that, there will be another Patsy Walker number sure, one. Yeah. Uh, now, he and artist Sal Buscema launched The Defenders as an ongoing series in August 1972, which is this very issue. Speaking of our pal Sal. That's right. You know, we did talk about Sal Buscema once before when we did our... Mm-hmm. Uh, spectacular Spider-Man episode. I can't remember the, the issue. Two twenty-six. Two twenty-six. Uh, clone so, saga. Yeah, that was our big clone saga one. So this is a bit of a rehash, but that's fine. There's uh, plenty to say about him. Uh, born January nineteen twenty-six uh, in nineteen thirty-six in Brooklyn, New York City. He was the youngest of four children, preceded by brothers Al in nineteen twenty-three, John in nineteen twenty-seven, the latter of whom became a celebrated comic book artist in his own right. And his sister Carol in 1929. Their father was an Italian immigrant and he was a barber. He passed away in 1973. Now, Sal was a fan of comic strips of the day and he credits his brother John with inspiring him to draw. He says, John was greatly responsible for me pursuing drawing. He was definitely an inspiration. Sal followed in John's footsteps and attending the High School of Music and Art, graduating in 1955. And he actually got his start in comic book as a comic book inker in the early 1950s when his brother agreed to let him ink uh, some comics pages. This led to Sal helping John doing occasional background art on the Dell comic series that John was drawing in the 50s. 
After high school, Buscema found work at a small two-man advertising art studio in Manhattan, but was fired after three months of doing mostly production work. He went on a to a larger commercial art studio, and that's where he was a gopher and del delivery person. He quit and spent less than a year fill filling wedding ring orders for the jewelry manufacturer J.R. Wooden Sons before being drafted into the peacetime U.S. Army in 1956, which was a thing that could happen, I suppose. Makes me feel like like I have done nothing with my life. I know, really. I mean, <laughs> right out of high school, he's had you know more jobs than I have my whole yes. life. No, he was uh, classified as an illustrator in the uh, in the military. Here, he served with the Army Corps of Engineers, stationed at Fort Belvoir in Virginia. Uh, he spent 21 months doing film strips and shots as training aides before being discharged after two years. He attained the rank of specialist third class, uh, which he called equivalent to being a colonel. Or corporal, I'm sorry, equivalent to being a corporal. Uh, after briefly returning to New York City to assist at a one-man art studio, an Army connection found him work at a large creative art studio in Washington, Washington D.C. Uh, there he did illustrations for government agencies, including the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Defense. Now, while he was there, he lived with his godparents, and after living with them for three months, Buscema and an Army buddy became roommates in Alexandria, Virginia. He started dating Joan, a secretary where he worked, in February 1959, and the two were married in May 1960. Their first son, Joe, Joe was born in 68, followed by Tony and Mike. I don't know their years, but they're out there in the world, I'm sure. In 1961, a call from his brother, John, brought Buscema back to New York City to work with him at an advertising agency called Alexander Chait Incorporated. This is the Mad Men days, folks, so this was probably pretty lucrative for him. Uh, after a year and a half, John Buscema returned to the comic book industry while Sal Buscema joined a friend and colleague from Creative Arts Studio, Mel M.D., who was opening his own company, Design Studio, was the name of it. Uh, there, Buscema stayed until 1968 when he began working for Marvel Comics, for which his brother was already established as a freelance artist. Sal Buscema, by this time, had spent every night for about a year teaching himself how to produce a dynamic page in the Marvel Comics storytelling style, enduring harsh critiques from his Marvel artist brother, John. He says... Once I got the hang of it, I made up six sample pages of pencils, uh, i.e. penciled, uninked art pages, which I regret because I wanted to be an inker. I didn't want a pencil. Excuse me. My first few jobs for Marvel were inking jobs, but I did those while working for Design Center. I wanted to work full-time for Marvel, so it was out of necessity that I penciled editor-in-chief's uh, that I penciled. Editor-in-Chief Stanley loved the samples. He asked me to come up on up to New York, which I did, and I went through the most fantastic interview of my life. Stan was leaping on his chair in his desk just to relate to me physically what he wanted on a comic book page. It was fascinating and it was charming at all at the same time. He made the sound effects the whole nine yards. He demonstrated every other way you could possibly demonstrate what he wanted on those pages, the dynamics and so on. If only there were camera phones at that time. I know. Yeah, Imagine seeing him hopping up on a desk. I wish we had any footage of that, really. I mean, any footage. I think there's a picture of him <laughs> posing standing on his desk, but I, I don't know if that's an action shot, really. <laughs> we got to see it in action. <laughs> now, uh, the interview had come about uh, after Buscema, at his brother's urging, had first written a Marvel production manager, Sal Brodsky, to introduce himself. Uh, Brodsky at the time had no assignments for him, and Buscema called him a couple of times just to bug him a little bit and let him know that he was still alive, and eventually the first job came through. That was uh, June of 1968. Uh, that story was uh, the, coming of the, the Coming of Gunhawk by writer Jerry Siegel. I'd never heard of that guy. 
<laughs> and uh, <laughs> Penciler Werner Roth. Uh, it was eventually published in the omnibus title, uh, Western Gunfighters Number 1, which was cover dated August 1970. Of that, Sal says, I think they just said, Sal, here's the plot. Go to it. Fair enough. Sure. Now, Sal Buscema's first published uh, comics work had come before that. Uh, this was inking his brother John's pencil art on four 39- to 40-page stories in the superhero comic The Silver Surfer. Uh, those are issues 4 through 7, February through August 1969. He also inked Larry Lieber's pencils on the regular-sized 20-page Western of Rawhide Kid. That was issue 68 in February 1969. Now, the Silver Surfer story is interesting. Uh, John Buscema specifically asked for his brother as an inker mm-hmm. on the Silver Surfer, uh, which at the time was a high-profile uh, project. Like a, that was Stan's yeah, kid, yeah. <laughs> exactly. He, he, was, he was hoping this would be his kind of magnum opus, his big science fiction whatever, you know what I mean, uh, shebang. It's so epic. yeah. So he, uh, he gave the character an unprecedented for the time double-sized 64-page with ads and covers solo series priced at 25 cents, more than twice the price of the standard 32-page 12-cent comment, mm-hmm. comic. Uh, Sal said, Joe Sinnott inked the first three Silver Sur- Surfer issues, and John was not happy with the inking Joe was doing on that. Joe was one of the greatest inkers of all time, but he did not ink John well because Joe's style of inking was somewhat overpowering, and at the end, it didn't look like John Buscema anymore. John did not like that because he was knocking himself out on this character because this was an important project that Stan had, Stan had come up with. John told Stan, I don't want Joe inking my work. He's losing my penciling. Stan was very reluctant, but he said, okay, who do you want? He said, I want my brother, and that's how I got it. He knew that I knew how to ink his work. He he was a little spotty on my first issue, but after that, he was absolutely delighted with what I did. So, nepotism, but... Born from, <laughs> but born from having done it, you know, he had been inking his brother's work since the fifties. So, you know, they he knew from whence they came. I think um, within a year, Busan and also Joe Sinnott turned out to pretty okay in comics. So I wouldn't don't worry about it. He did all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, within within a year, Busan was penciling the superhero team comic, The Avengers. Busan and writer Roy Thomas introduced the Squadron Sinister in The Avengers number sixty nine, October nineteen sixty nine, as an homage to the Justice League. And the Thomas Buscema team produced the last news story for the X-Men title before that series became all reprints for several years. They created the supervillain Ly- Lyra in Submariner number 32, December 1970. And Buscema drew an Avengers story plotted by novelist Harlan, Harlan Ellison, which fe- featured the debut of Cyclops. And writer Engelhart and Buscema launched The Defenders as an ongoing series in ni- August 1972, which is... This very book that we're reading today. Yes. Now, uh, speaking of them, defenders, let's uh, let's hit on their origin a bit here. Uh, a crossover story penned by Roy Thomas, featuring in uh, Doctor Strange issue number 183, which was November 1969, uh, Submariner number 22, February 1970, and the Incredible Hulk number 126, April 1970. So this is a six-month project here. Uh, and, um, <laughs> and really interesting, you know, something we talked about a little bit before the show is that this is really what you see the beginning of comics collecting the modern sense and of, and of you know yeah. what will become the direct market because being able to carry the story along three totally different comic books you're assuming that people are buying all marvel or this caters to those people uh certainly obviously you want to pull a, a you know doctor strange fan to try out a submariner too theoretically but 
more than likely, you know, we were talking, he's appealing to a bunch of people. They know when their comics show up at the newsstand. And, you know, they, they just are buying all Marvel anyway, so this works for them. Yeah, it's the gotta catch them all uh, approach. Yeah. Now, uh, now, the series Doctor Strange was canceled, and a storyline continued here. Uh, Doctor Strange, the character, he teams with Namor the Submariner and then the Hulk to protect the Earth from the Undying Ones. And their leader, the Nameless One. What, what is his name? <laughs> I'm sorry, it's Nameless. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, now, Barbara Norris, later the Valkyrie, first appears in this story. Yeah, and she figures in prominently in the whole Defenders line. So uh, Certainly. In these three issues, Submariner 34 to 35, sorry, uh, in Submariner 34 to 35, February, March 1971, by Roy Thomas and Sal Buscema, Namor enlists the Silver Surfer and the Hulk to stop a weather control experiment. He accidentally liberates a small island nation from a dictator, and they also face off with the Avengers under the name The Titans 3. Hmm. Sure. Now, the, def- <laughs> sure. the Defenders first appeared as a feature in Marvel Feature number 1. This is December 1971 by Roy Thomas and Ross Andrew. Uh, the original team of Doctor Strange, the Submariner, and the Hulk, they battle an alien techno-wizard called Yandroth. Uh, they remain a team afterward, appear in two more issues of Marvel Feature, and then have their series debut in The Defenders number 1. Ta-da. Yes, uh, story title. My name is... I keep wanting to call him Nicodemus. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my name is Necrodamus, and I slay by the stars. Yeah, and once again, it's got that eye-grabbing red background that is reminiscent to me of the Hulk 181, although, you know, the layout is different, but... Red obviously works on the stands, folks, to get you uh, to cop a book. Hmm, mine's in black and white. <laughs> oh, well, take my word for it. It's red. <laughs> the cover features all the pertinent characters. Hulk and Doctor Strange in the foreground looking down from a ledge. And below, Namor is being threatened by a hunchback in a robe wielding an arcane knife. That's right. And the hunchback says, Tonight, Namor, you die! Some monsters are forming in the smoke coming from a couple of nearby chalices. All things considered, it's a pretty good attention grabber. Let's learn Let's learn a little bit more about our heroes. Yeah, there was uh, Namor the Submariner. He's the guy about to be stabbed with a knife. He sure. debuted in Motion Picture Funnies Weekly, April 1939, by Bill Everett. He's also known as Namor McKenzie, the mutant son of a human sea captain and a princess of the mythical undersea kingdom of Atlantis. Namor possesses super strength and aquatic abilities. Sometimes he's a good guy, sometimes he's a villain. He's kind of capricious like that. Yeah, he's, 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 uh, he's a little uppity. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, we got the Hulk. He first appeared in Incredible Hulk number one. May 1962 by Stan and Jack. Uh, during some gamma ray testing for the U.S. Army, Dr. Bruce Banner is accidentally irradiated and finds that he can turn into an unstoppable behemoth when angry or at night or whenever he feels like, depending on when the story takes place. That's right. Uh, you know, it depends <laughs> who writes it, but yeah, basically he changes back and forth. And then one of my favorite characters, Doctor Strange, he debuted in Strange Tales number 110, uh, cover date July 1963 by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. Dr. Stephen Strange sought homeopathic cures after being mangled in a bad car accident and unwittingly becomes a world-class sorcerer and disciple of the Ancient One. He lives in a house in Greenwich Village, New York, which would cost approximately $20 million today. (laughs) Uh, So uh, we begin our book with a banner announcing the Dynamic Defenders, and a particularly tortured-looking Hulk is lumbering around outdoors one evening. Suddenly, Namor drops from the sky and lands near the Hulk with a kaboom! 
Hulk says, Human fall from sky, like broken bird. If this is trick, Hulk will smash fast. Yeah, I don't get the impression Hulk does anything too fast here, but... No, uh, no. <laughs> he steps closer to Namor's prostrate form, which is glowing, and Hulk can't touch him, probably because of the glowing. Something Hulk cannot see is in way. Wake up, Namor. Hulk is here. Namor doesn't wake up, and Hulk doesn't know what to do because he never had to help a friend before. Doctor Strange shows up nope. somewhere above the Hulk from the looks of things. I think that's the Hulk thinking about um, Strange. Yeah, sort of a strange, sort of an odd way to depict <laughs> it, but yeah, I do yes. think that's what's happening there. And he says, wait, Hulk remembers other human. Help Namor and Hulk in past, in group called Defenders. And he was Doctor, what fish men need. He was Doctor Strange. Now, Fishman, he clearly knows this guy's name is Namor. He's just being, well, he's be calling him names now. I mean, what, you know what Pretty I mean? Pretty much. Well, all of a sudden he's Fishman. Give me a break. Gilfoot. Uh, yeah, come on. Oh, I got to go to uh, white, white hair doctor, whatever. Uh, Hulk remembers that he doesn't actually like Doctor Strange based on their last <laughs> meeting in Marvel feature number three. That was June 1972. Boy, Roy Thomas and Ross oh. Andrew. Now, the pertinent information has been uh, provided by a helpful editorial caption. That's right. These show up uh, quite often in this book. This story mm -hmm. was the last appearance of the Defenders in Marvel feature, in, incidentally. Uh, Hulk realizes that people hate him without Doctor Strange's help, so he bounces off <laughs> to find the good doctor. <laughs> Hulk has few friends and many enemies, so friends count more. Hulk will go to Doctor Strange. Do not worry, Fishman. Hulk will save the day. And then in one leap, Hulk lands on the upper roadway of the George Washington Bridge. So I'm guessing Namor must have touched down somewhere along the Palisades. And they, 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 do, they do call out that it's New Jersey later, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love to get these things, you know, right and geographically located. Yeah, we want to put the X on the X marks the spot. Exactly. Uh, now, Hulk's arrival, you know, oddly enough, it startles some drivers and pedestrians. And they probably shouldn't be walking on a bridge in the first place. I don't believe uh, GWB has a pedestrian walkway. It definitely isn't where the cars are driving. But anyway, uh, <laughs> one guy in a car says, Harriet, I told you, we got to start taking the Lincoln Tunnel. Hulk makes the way to Manhattan quickly. New York. Hulk hate New York. Too many people, too much noise, bad air. Hulk wishes he were back in desert. He's really speaking your language there, Chris. Let me tell you, that's uh, that's basically the, <laughs> that's the story of Chris Sheehan, basically, right? Is that how that happened? <laughs> bad air, go desert, you know. <laughs> go desert. Now, meanwhile, in his Greenwich Village sanctum, Doctor Strange is trying to figure out what's got him spooked so. Rise, oh gleaming crystal of Agamotto. I would search your dazzling depths for a clue to the evil I feel hovering like a vulture over me tonight. There's a commotion outside that draws Strange's attention. And guess what? It's Hulk scaring the willies that are everyone on the street. Like he does. Out of Hulk's way, puny human. Hulk must find Doctor Strange. There's a red-headed hippie there that says, Oh, wow, just when I got used to rip-offs, muggers, and junkies, I have to run into this. And he'll probably get used to this, too. Yeah, it's only the, it's only the early 70s, buddy. You got a long <laughs> way to go. Doctor Strange approaches the Hulk tentatively, unsure if he's come as a friend or a foe. You, Hulk, remember you. And Hulk will smash. Wait, wait. 
Hulk almost forgot reason for coming. Oh, Hulk. Uh, <laughs> silly. Uh, Hulk <laughs> explains the situation, so Doctor Strange magics them over to Namor with a begone. What is happening? Hulk does not understand. Nor need you, monster. My simple spells of invisibility and levitation will work nonetheless. Well, excuse the Hulk. Yeah, really. Uh, and I like how this is explained away. Like, these are simple spells of, of invisibility and levitation. Like, if, like teleporting, but that would be too much. But whipping, yes. whipping up a little levitation, that ain't nothing, you know? What are you talking about? No, ain't no thing. <laughs> now, Strange examines Namor with magic hands and notes that he's alive and unhurt, but held unconscious by a mystical barrier, unlike any he's ever uh, previously encountered. It's the work of Nekrodamus, a flat-faced hooded imp from the cover of this book. He comes out of a portal or something nearby. Yeah, so uh, He's like, boink, yeah. hey, guys. Uh, Doctor Strange demands he step into the light so they can get a good look at him. Yeah, Nekrodamus says, Oh, my features scarcely matter, Doctor. What concerns you is my power and those who grant it to me, the undying ones. It's what a lot of ugly people say. Yeah, really. Uh, <laughs> he's a weird-looking fella. But let's, let's talk about those features some more, because you look a little funny. <laughs> a little bit like a pumpkin. Uh, now we get a recap. It actually picks up from the final issue of Doctor Strange 183 from November 69 by Roy Thomas and Gene Cullen. And we talked about that before. That's really how the Defender's origin was this whole Undying One's nameless uh, stuff. Gotta catch them all. Thanks, editorial caption. Yep, you're always there to help us out. It seems that, first of all, Doctor Strange was wearing a really stupid-looking blue bodysuit. Yes. Uh, this costume debuted in Doctor Strange 177, February 1969, by Thomas and Colin. And he actually changed himself to look like this because some bad guy stole his identity. <laughs> what? Should have had LifeLock or something. Silly stuff. Uh, <laughs> Necrodamus tells the tale in caption form. The Undying Ones, demons spawned in some timeless, unknown cosmos against whom you first pitted yourself the night you answered an appeal from an old and long-lost friend. The demons sought an idol that your friend had hidden, and you but barely escaped with your life by subjecting lurking night fiends to a blistering blast of sunlight. <laughs> These night fiends, they look not unlike uh, perhaps those junkies that Hippie was bugging yeah, out about earlier. I, I think a blast of sunlight would take those guys out too, uh, the junkies <laughs> and the night fiends. Uh, Doctor Strange then enlisted the Submariner to find the idol in Submariner number 22, February 1970, by Roy Thomas and Marie Severin. You the man, Stan. Thanks for the caption. That's right. He's to help us. <laughs> Namor and Doctor Strange faced off against a ru the ruler of the Undying Ones, the Nameless One. What was his name again? These are yeah. some lazy monikers. I know, really. He ran, he ran out of names in the old hat. He was like, oh, whatever. <laughs> the hat's empty. Must be nameless. Uh, now, Necrodamus continues, but it gets complicated. But you knew at last the battle was hopeless, so you thrust Namor through a closing dimensional gap to safety, that you might martyr yourself forever alone in my master's cosmos. Soon after, however, other disciples of the Nameless One plunged the Hulk and a traitor to our cause into the dimension of the noisome Nightcrawler. But their combat destroyed that entire universe. Oh, so that's how you teleport. Nightcrawler did yeah, it, right? Apparently, Bamf is what it was. <laughs> Bamf? Oh, wait, no, not that Nightcrawler. It, it, this one is actually Night-Crawler, so... 
-hmm. And uh, he's talking about The Incredible Hulk, number 126, April 1970, by Roy Thomas and Herb Trimp. Uh, Anyway, everyone fell into the Nameless One's realm, and then the traitor sacrificed herself to release both Doctor Strange and the Hulk. Must have been a two-for-one sale. Yeah, apparently before it had to be one-for-one, but I guess, you know, they they even show in the the panel that they're sort of hugging each other. So maybe it was like going through the turnstile, you know, when you're a kid with your buddy behind you. (laughs) Only pay for one Exactly, you know, you just gotta gotta (laughs) shuffle along quickly. So uh, still the nameless one can grant some wishes if you rub his bottle right, and so he will fix Necrodamus' deformed body. If he sacrifices Namor just when the stars are exactly aligned. And he only got the Hulk and Doctor Strange to show up just to just to gloat about it. That's all. That's the only reason they're here. What a jerk! Yeah. And Necrodamus takes off for an hour just to ramp up the suspense. Yeah. What? 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 Uh, what do we see got? He, he's like, I gotta eat dinner and go to the bathroom. I'll be right that's back. <laughs> Don't go nowhere. Yeah. Now, neither Strange nor Hulk can break the barrier around Namor. Doctor Strange decides that they must resort to the spell of time stoppage to gain precious hours. It will require more magical might than I have ever wielded, but wield it I must. List ye powers of the fourth dimension, rise, your scepters herald time's suspension. Slow, the green earth's travel round uh, the sun. Let uh, Doctor Strange falters, hand over his face in shame or exhaustion. It is impossible. No mortal's power can do this. And I don't, I don't think this guy's mortal. Uh, now, in doing, <laughs> in doing this, Doctor Strange unwittingly breaks a time charm elsewhere in the world, uh, which frees a nuclear device called Omegatron from one time from being time halted some weeks ago. Yeah, that happened in Marvel feature number one in December 1971 by Roy Thomas and Ross Andrew. Oh, editorial caption, I just can't quit you. <laughs> <laughs> now Doctor Strange is tired and figures nothing can be done. So he meditates while the Hulk keeps pounding on Namor with a croom. Yep. Doctor Strange, he ain't he ain't hip to this racket. Nope, he says, and of the of sounds, the infernal pounding of the Hulk is most unpleasant. Enough, behemoth. Now is the time for my plan. No, not yet. Hulk still not safe, Fishman. If you would do that, we must keep Namor and Necrodamus apart. And uh, Doctor Strange, he uh, he taps into the Juggernaut here. He forms the <laughs> Crimson Bands of Sidorak around the Hulk and Namor. It's kind of a sphere of giant red mechan- ma- ma- magical bandages. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's like a collapsing sphere. But a Hulk calls within to say that Namor's disappeared. Fishman sank into ground like water into dry sponge. A pretty good analogy, Hulk. He, uh, Doctor Strange frees the Hulk. Of course. Oh, I have been blind this night, blind and abysmally overconfident. There must be cabins below us in which Necrodemus's plans to form his terrible act of tribute. There, that cave mouth. Run, monster. Don't tell Hulk what to do. <laughs> they rush into the cave, and they're attacked by a giant monster. Right out of, like, a Jack Kirby drone where monsters dwell, dwell Connor. Yeah, I love it. it it's this giant, yep. scaly beast in a knockoff Beatles wig. It really it's, uh, takes you back. <laughs> Crazy. It goes, 
I'm trying to figure out how to do this voice here. I am the demon of the dark, and you are dead. And uh, Hulk's just glad to have a solid enemy to fight for once. Sure. He pummels the demon into, into unconsciousness pretty handily. It's like there's not even a fight, really. Just gonna beat like the snot out of him. Boom. Yeah. And uh, further into the cave, Doctor Strange and the Hulk follow a light to see an unholy ceremony. Doctor Strange says, "By the gods above, below, and beyond." I think he's got all of them. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm already more after that. <laughs> no, it's it's actually another angle of the very scene we saw on the cover. Yeah, it is. That's right. Uh, I, which I do love seeing, but yes, that's great. I mean, I, I hate when you see one thing on the cover and then the inside it's a total switcheroo. But uh, mm-hmm. a caption sort of sets the scene for us too. In the gibbous glow of twin witch fires, the two-headed god does not does seem to leer and gibber among the murky tendrils of musky incense. But then it is gone again, wrapped in shifting smoke and stygian shadows, and one cannot be certain. While below, there is the dwar- still the dwarf and the dagger. I thought we weren't just writing like Stanley. I was just going to say that too. Yeah. <laughs> now, also, you know, there's a dwarf, the dagger, and also our friend Namor. Yeah. Let's not forget about he's, him. He's sort of the, the guy that's being threatened. Yes. Uh, Doctor Strange says, "We are too near the hour of sacrifice. The stench of evil here is too potent. My spells cannot stop him now. It's up to you, Hulk." But he—he he is so puny. Hulk does not fight enemies smaller than he is. I mean, that's just. Flat out not true, you know. What I mean? All the time, right? <laughs> he is constantly fighting enemies. <laughs> we just read a comic last week where he fought an enemy smaller than him. I know. What are you talking about? But anyway, Necrodamus says, "So you penetrated even here, eh? Well, it does not matter, for though I am indeed small and deformed." Sounds dirty. Um, we see the necessary stars coming closer into alignment. Uh, Necrodamus grows from a hunchback dwarf into a, a ruggedly strong, big, huge dude. Yep. And uh, that dagger is now glowing. Necrodamus shall be reborn! Well, not until him and Hulk fight. Yeah, and, uh, and then the uh, stars come even closer into alignment. Doctor Strange is looking for a way to help Namor still. Gods, I cannot influence the battle directly, but with luck, yes, by the roving rings of Ragador, Namor breathes inside that mystic barrier. Then air can penetrate it, and air contains water vapor. If I can draw enough vapor inside that shell and concentrate it... So Namor breathes air. Yeah, I didn't know that. I thought he was... Pretty much an Atlantean, but uh, I thought so too. Uh, Doctor Strange uses a spell to fill Namor's mystic shield with water and wakes him up, and he breaks out. And he goes, "I am free." <laughs> the stars come ever closer, and Necrodamus plunges his dagger into Hulk's back. He says, "Die, monster!" And I will sacrifice two foes this night instead of one. Namor careens on this into the seat and punches Necrodamus in the face. Or none, lunatic. Stay your fatal thrust and answer to the avenging sun. Namor may be too late. Hulk is changing back into Bruce Banner. And as this happens, the stars ever edge closer to that straight line. We we keep seeing these panels in between them, yeah, with the stars getting closer and closer. Uh, Necrodamus says, Your attack is useless, Namor. The stars give me strength to conquer you. Which makes Doctor Strange want to hop into the fray. What of me, Necrodamus? Strange tries to hold Necrodamus back from plunging the dagger into Namor's neck. As the stars begin aligning, the dagger gets closer and closer to Namor, panel by panel. 
A caption reads, And a forgotten corner, a man stirs. A man whose great green alter ego was sorely wounded by a demi demonic dagger. Yet magic must have aimed precisely. And the man who now staggers to his feet is unhurt. Pretty lucky break. You gotta say. Uh <laughs> A banner rushes over to the scuffle, and with his help, it slows Necrodamus enough that he misses that big moment of star alignment. Uh, so now the stars are aligned, and no one is dead. No! You kept me from completing the killing stroke, and again I become what I was. So I must flee, flee like a craven jackal, but I shall return when the stars again call out for blood, and my masters and I will have our vengeance. And so Necrodamus disappears, conveniently. Yeah. Uh, there's still one loose end to tie up here, however. But you, Namor, you must explain this ordeal to us. How did Necrodamus capture you and drop you from the sky to attract the Hulk? He did not drop me, mage. I was thrown from the heavens by the Silver Surfer. I had thought this mystery at an end, but I see it has just begun. Now, to fully explain this enigma, the defenders must search for the Silver Surfer. Uh, you guys, you, uh, you aren't busy or anything, right? You can come with me in, into outer space. Yes, uh, to be continued, obviously. Yeah. Now, oddly, the cover of Defenders number two has Search for the Silver Surfer, but the story is called The Secret of the Silver Surfer. Yeah. I guess as, as long as there's some, some amount of, of alliteration, we're good. Exactly, yeah. And we, and we know <laughs> we're getting down to the nitty-gritty about Silver Surfer. That's the point of the thing. But uh, yes. that was the first issue of the Defenders titular series, their first mm -hmm. volume. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, yeah. it was pretty straightforward comic book stuff, and maybe that's one of the things I enjoyed about it was it didn't, you know, I didn't have to dig too <laughs> dig too <laughs> deeply to get what was going didn't have on. To engage. Yeah, <laughs> it's sort of like, oh yeah, but you know, it, everything pretty much worked out well. Uh, I, you enjoyed it too. It, it's, it, I don't think you yeah, lost was... anything from the from not having color except for the no. fact that the color was red. Yeah, no, no, I, I love reading in the essential format. I think it's a it's a great format, and I'm sad that it's that they're no longer using it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, for the for the issue itself, I I always uh I always think about Steve Gerber when I think about the Defenders and a more esoteric and eccentric yep. storytelling. So this was almost like like just boilerplate superheroics. It was great. Yeah. But uh, it kind of it kind of took me by surprise because I was expecting, you know, there was no elf with a gun showing up. I mean, yeah, I think I think you I think you were kind of stealing yourself during the week. You're like, all right, I got to get into this. And then when yeah. you did, you were like, oh, that was easy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, it's nice to have that now and again. A sure. nice, nice classic uh, comic book template and uh, foundational storytelling. Yeah. But of course. As we already said here, this very story is continued, and the defenders are far from uh, being concluded as a team, and they go through a lot of iterations. Plus, there's a lot more to be said about Sal Buscema, and especially Steve Englehart, and we're going to get to all that when we come back after the break. Yusa writes West Coast Avengers, Captain America, and currently you're doing your own novels. Right. So we are just talking about why are you not writing comics currently? Well, the business has changed quite a bit. I mean, when I got into it, they basically said, here, Captain America is all yours. Do whatever you want to do. I mean, who could argue with a, with a deal like that? And the deal has changed quite a bit over the years. I mean, now it's, you know, tell us what you're going to do for the next 12 issues. We'll get back to you if we decide to let you do it. You know, it's like, eh, it's, it's more trouble. 
That's why I shifted over to novels. Well, that and the fact that DC ripped me off for the Dark Knight movie. But Do you want to talk anything about the Dark Knight, that situation? Sure. Um, DC asked us to do, me and Marshall Rogers, to do a Dark Detective 3. We did Dark Detective 2, which was the one where the Joker ran for governor, and that came out. Dark Detective 3, I, I wrote all six issues. Marshall started to draw the first issue, and then he died. And DC basically sort of cut off all communication at that point. And I'm, I'm like giving interviews to everybody about my partner, Marshall. And I can't get DC on the phone. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm, are we going to go ahead with this? Are we not going to go ahead with this? Are you guys going to do anything about, you know, for Marshall or anything? Nobody would return my calls, which was very odd. And then uh, an editor at DC called up Terry Austin, who was the inker on those books, and said, uh, we've been looking for an excuse not to publish this, and Marshall's death gives us that excuse. So you're, you guys are done which I thought was very odd. You know, I mean, it's like, why wouldn't you publish it? There were, I mean, Walt Simonson was, was asking, could he do the art to fill in? Paul Galassi asked if he could do the art. I mean, people, and much like the dead Heath Ledger later, here's the, the dead Marshall Rogers. I mean, it's like the publicity angle, it's, it's all there. Why wouldn't they do it? But it's their decision. So, you know, I went away, and then a year later, I went to see the Dark Knight movie, and I'm sitting there in the theater and see my story on the screen, you know? So now I know why they didn't publish the comic, but um, it, was, it was a complete shock, complete shock. And, um, you know, people say, well, are you going to sue? And I'm like, well, Steve Gerber sued, and it didn't get him very far, and George, or, uh, Marv Wolfman sued, and it didn't get him very far. I don't think suing Warner Brothers is, is something that makes a whole lot of sense. So it's just DC, you know, once upon a time they, they had me come in and, and basically revamp all their characters in order to, like, get them up off the floor. They gave me the Justice League and the Batman and, like, help us compete. And that's how my DC career ended with them ripping me off. So... What are you going to say? All right, everybody, we're back to talk some more about that team, the Defenders, and what how they fared after this issue that we just read. Uh, after Engelhart left the series, Len Wein wrote it for a short while and later edited the Defenders. He introduced such characters as Alpha the Ultimate Mutant and the Wrecking Crew. Steve Gerber first worked on the characters in Giant Size Defenders number 3, January 1975, and became the writer of the main title with issue number 20 the following month. He wrote the series until issue number 41 in November 1976. This was the run that you were alluding to before that I think is probably better known overall. And it feels so like it was so much longer than just 21 issues. I know, yeah. I, you know, yeah, it's just, uh, I guess... That's a pretty good run for uh, for comics, but yeah, it's, sure. you feel like it's a bigger chunk. Um, he liked to bring back forgotten characters from Marvel's pre-Marvel comics past, for instance, the Headmen. They were formed from 1950s anthological horror characters appearing in the reprint title Weird Wonder Tales No. 7 in December 1974. That comic's five reprinted stories included the introduction of Darthur, Dr. Arthur Nagin, the Gorilla Man from Mystery Tales No. 21, art by Bob Powell, Chandu the Yogi from Tales of Suspense No. 9, 
Art by George Evans and Dr. Jerry Morgan, a.k.a. Shrunken Bones, from World of Fantasy number 11, art by Angelo Torres. Uh, he also brought back Arnold Drake and Gene Collins' Guardians of the Galaxy, Marvel <laughs> Superheroes number 18, January 1969 debut, uh, as well as introducing Howard the Duck to the team, of course. He had to do that mm-hmm. in Marvel Treasury Edition number 12, January 1976. Then uh, David Anthony Kraft wrote the Defenders for nearly every issue from 44 to uh, 68. That was February of 77 through February of 79. Uh, He would then come back for issue uh, number 89 in November 1980. Uh, The Defender for a Day storyline in issues 62 through 64 saw dozens of new applicants attempting to join the Defenders, as well as a number of villains attempting to present themselves as Defenders members in order to confuse the authorities and the public as they commit robberies. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? Kraft later recalled that reactions to the story's offbeat humor were very polarized. He said that uh, readers were either wildly enthusiastic or absolutely and very utterly appalled. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't win them all. It seems like today, too. It seems like, you know, <laughs> this is true. It comes in two flavors. Yes. Now, in late 1978, uh, Al Milgram, the editor of The Defenders, assigned writer Stephen Grant to concoct the conclusion to Steve Gerber's Omega the Unknown series in two issues. That was Defenders 76 through 77, October through November 1979, and at the end uh, of, of which most of the original series characters were killed. Have you ever read Omega the Unknown? I have not, no. It's uh, It's... I, I don't want to say it's worth checking out, but it's it's weird. It's as well it's Gerber. I've heard it mentioned as being you know one of the weirdest Marvel '70s things. Yeah, but uh, I really as far as Gerber goes, I'd say I'm pretty much a man thing, Howard the Duck kind of territory. Hmm. Yeah, because I read that because they uh, a novelist named Jonathan Leith- Lethem he uh, resurrected Omega the Unknown probably uh, 2007 2008. Yeah, that was uh, in uh, the Brooklyn book, right? Wasn't that? Uh... It was uh, it was called Omega Mo- the Unknown. No, no, his and, book was Motherless Brooklyn, right? Oh what yeah, yeah, it? yeah. And I think it was like Farrell Dalrymple was the artist on that. It was very strange, but uh, it was uh, I don't know, it was different than the uh, than the Gerber one a bit. But uh, it was I enjoyed it. It was weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, now, while Gerber seemed unhappy with Grant's conclusion, which I, a lot of people were unhappy with with his conclusion. Uh, it nevertheless tied up the loose ends of the comic series, and it is considered canon by Marvel. It was like a almost like a running joke how uh, like they Marvel just kept getting letters about how are you going to wrap up Omega the Unknown? Yeah, and they, they just kept saying they were going to do it, and, they, and <laughs> they, they did it. You know, they finally got around to doing it. Uh, now Grant later wrote that the character ha- held no interest for him, but he tried to approach writing the story in the way that he felt that Gerber would have uh, had he been allowed to complete it himself. Yeah, and it concluded, which is more than you could say for a lot of comic a lot of, stories, yeah. so that's something. Uh, writer J.M. DeMatteis took over the series with issue number 92, February 1981, cover date. Coming from a background of writing eight-page horror shorts for DC Comics, DeMatteis found it a struggle to adapt to writing a 22-page superhero comic on a monthly basis. He and Mark Gruenwald co-wrote The Defenders number 107 to 109, May through July 1982, which resolved remaining plot points from the Valkyrie story by Kraft and Ed Hannigan, published three years earlier. While working on the series, DeMatteis developed a strong friendship with penciler Don Perlin, who would draw the series for nearly half its run. 
During its run, Perlin recalled that he became the first guy unwittingly to put profanity in a Comics Code-approved comic. <laughs> he says, this happened in one issue of The Defenders. There was a character in there who was a lawyer for The Defenders, and his gimmick was that no matter what, where you saw him in his office, there had to be a TV set on. He was always watching TV. And while I was drawing one of the panels, I was listening to a talk show, and there was someone on telling how bad cereal for kids were. They were all loaded with sugar. So I drew a picture on the TV of a bunny rabbit holding a box of cereal, and across the label where the name of the cereal would be, I penciled in... So I figured, because I used to write nutty comments in the borders and stuff, I figured they'd get a laugh out of it and change it. So they gave it to Peru-born inker Pablo Marcos, and I don't know if he knew how to read English or not, but he inked it. I walked in one day to Marvel, and editor-in-chief Jim Shooter started yelling, What did you do? Look at it. They called me upstairs and showed me this. And I said, wait a minute. That thing goes through an assistant editor, an editor, a proofreader, and then you're supposed to read it. <laughs> and no one picked it up, so don't blame me. So what happened on was, he said, fine, just don't write any more comments on your pages. I remember uh, reading about that in one of those uh, Comics Legends uh, Revealed, articles. Yeah. 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 Um, now, uh, Demetrius would feel that the comic needed a shake-up, and as of issue number 125, they changed the title from Defenders to The New Defenders, which seems to be a Marvel thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, as the these this is when the original four members, which is you know Doctor Strange, Silver Surfer, the Hulk, and Namor, they're forced to leave the team due to an alien prophecy that says they will eventually destroy destroy the world. Uh, the Beast reforms the team as an official superhero team, complete with government clearance. The new Defenders concept provided a substantial boost to the series sales, but left Demetrius in a creative drought, as he realized in retrospect that... This is his quote here. I created a book that was exactly the kind of thing I hated to write. I made it into a standard superhero team. Uh, he would only stay, uh, he would stay on for about four issues of the New Defenders before turning it over to uh, a writer by the name of Peter Gillis. Uh, the series' final issue was New Defenders number 152. This is February of 86. Uh, pencil, penciler Don Perlin recounted, Editor Carl Potts, he took me and Peter Gillis to lunch. We went to an Indian restaurant. He said, they canceled the book. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I guess they, they can't all be uh, you know shocking stories. Exactly. Some of them are just <laughs> typical uh, office stuff, yeah. Uh, among the team are were a few mutant characters, and they all left to join the uh, newly launching uh, X Factor. Yeah, so that so there was spin out from it, you know. Also, I sure. like the fact that if you want, you can pronounce new defenders as the nude offenders. Yeah, if you like. I wonder if that was part of it. <laughs> uh, who knows? Uh, if, if Gerber wasn't involved, then probably not. But who knows? That was the that was the Boneyard Press version. Oh right! Oh goodness. <laughs> anyway, uh, the original trio reunited in the Incredible Hulk number three seventy to three seventy one. That was June through July nineteen ninety, in which it was revealed that the prophecy that was keeping them from being defenders that was a hoax all along. So they then rejoin with the Silver Surfer in a story entitled The Return of the Defenders, running in the Incredible Hulk Annual Number 18, Namor the Submariner Annual Number 2, Silver Surfer Annual Number 5, and Doctor Strange Sorcerer Supreme Annual Number 2. Kind of the same gimmick that spawned the team in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, Marvel revived the Defenders' name with uh, the Secret Defenders in 1993, and this new team appeared unofficially in Doctor Strange number 50 and later Fantastic Four number 374 before being officially introduced in Secret Defenders number 1, March 1993. The I know that one had a, a red cover because it was red foil. Ooh, so you, 
that that'll keep it a big secret, right? A nice mm-hmm. red foil cover. You know, no one yep. no one knew what it was about. Um, the concept was that Doctor Strange was leading rotating teams selected for specific missions. Did and, did and you, price increases. Did you track you track this comic through the nineties? Was this one of your uh, polls? I I picked it up every now and again. Yeah. Uh, usually when it was a special issue, but it was. Or when it included like an X Men character right, like Wolverine right. who would pop in, it was it was a very uh, it was like it was like a really chasing the wizard hot book <laughs> right. type of a thing. Yeah, where it's all the uh, the big characters of the day would show up. It's exactly in juice sales, and you know you kind of have a good yep. time with it. Not not quite brave and the bold type stuff, but no, uh, I, you know I, I like I love this comic, so I do want to look at more Defenders, but. Uh, hmm. I might not run to this, but anyway, some of the members of that team included Wolverine, Dark Hawk, Spider Woman, Spider Man, Hulk, Ghost Rider, and there are others, and we will talk about them a little later on. Uh, Doctor Strange was removed from the book when his character when this character was reassigned to the Midnight Suns imprint at Marvel. Uh, Druid took over his spot, and then the rotating team stopped in favor of a longer story about Druid and Cognoscenti. Secret Defenders ended with issue number twenty-five. I wonder if Cognoscenti was uh, related to Anacenti. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, some years later, the Defenders reunited. Uh, this was Defenders Volume 2. It was a 12-issue series running from March 2001 to February of 2002. This was created by uh, Kurt Busiek and Eric Lawson. It featured like a... Because, you know, Larson, he's got kind of a Kirby-esque yeah. uh, flair to him. And it, it, it was a very... Uh, it felt very Silver Agey. It was a it was a very welcome change from what we had uh, been getting. And Busek's got uh, a great Silver Age sensibility. Of I mean, course, Astro yeah. Boy is like is like a, the the best long form love letter to the that era you could ever hope to read. Yeah, he's he's one of the uh, the custodians of the Silver Age. Absolutely, it seems. yeah. Uh, that series ended, like we said, at issue 12, and it was immediately followed by a uh, a short series called The Order. It ran six issues from April to September of 2002. Uh, Yandroth manipulated Gaia into cursing the primary four defenders. This is you know, strange, Submariner, Hulk, and Silver Surfer, so that they would be summoned to a major to major crisis situations. So they were cursed with heroism, being heroes. Is that what the problem That's, was? Uh, you can't get any worse than that. Uh, <laughs> now uh, the def- uh, Defenders, a uh, five-issue miniseries, they just can't let it go. It debuted in uh, July of 2005, and this would assemble uh, our our old pals from the Justice League International: Keith Giffen, J.M.D. Mateus, and Kevin uh, Kevin Maguire. It was all right. Um, well, it didn't hold my attention, unfortunately. Speaking of not holding my attention, uh, Joe Casey <laughs> wrote a six-issue miniseries called "The Last Defenders," which it was a lie. Uh, May through October 2008. There's a new lineup of defenders as a result of the Superhero Registration Act and the events of the less terrible Civil War. Mm, the first um, one, yeah. Yeah, the less bad version. Um, in Volume Three of the Hulk series, I remember that one. The, the last defenders. I think Colossus was part of that team. Oh yeah, we, we, I, we I got seem all, to remember. We got all team. Oh, we have we got list. team breakdowns coming up, yes. so we'll find out. Yeah. Uh, now, in Volume 3 of the Hulk series, which is uh, this is issues 10 through 12, Mar- uh, March through May 2009, Red Hulk assembles a counter team of supervillains called the Offenders. Whether or not they're nude, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, this includes Baron Mordo, Terax the Tamer, and Tiger Shark. 
during the 2011 Fear Itself storyline, which was terrible, Doctor Strange forms a new version of the Defenders with Lyra, who is the daughter of the Hulk. This was the uh, other She-Hulk. Mm-hmm. Um, Namor, Loa, who was a student uh, at the X-Men school, and the uh, Silver Surfer to confront Atuma, who would become Nurkrod. Nurkrod. What the hell is this? Nurkrod. <laughs> Breaker of Oceans. Hey, whatever. Many past Defenders appear in the last issue. Yeah. yeah, but this one seems a little slapped together, but, you know, I'm sure it all made perfect sense at the time. Keep them copyright. In, uh, exactly. In December 2011, Marvel launched a new Defender series written by Matt Fraction, drawn by Terry Dodson. This featured Doctor Strange, Red She-Hulk, Namor, the Silver Surfer, and Iron Fist. Did you uh, read this one? I didn't read this one. I, I don't recall it lasting very long either. It but didn't. It was it was very very hyped, and I remember turning open in the book, and the first page was Doctor Strange in bed with a lady, and I was like, okay, mm-hmm. it's a Matt Fraction book. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, he was, and he was, at that time he was writing three books, I believe. I know he's he was writing F- uh, Fantastic Four. Every other Marvel book. Yeah, yeah. It seemed like between him, Bendis, and then Hickman got the uh, all the Avengers books. Yeah. But anyway, um, February 2013 saw the debut of the Fearless Defenders, a series written by Cullen Bunn with artwork by Will Sliney. <laughs> After writing Fear Itself, The Fearless, it was suggested to Bunn that it should be run as a Defenders title. However, Bunn explained that beyond the name, there is little connection to the Defenders. And in 2017, Marvel is launching a brand new Defenders comic book series starring Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, and Iron Fist to tie in with the Netflix show of the same name and characters naturally. And I, I bet you couldn't guess what this new Marvel title, who, who's the writer of this? Wait, let me see here. It's gonna, it's, it's, it's a tie-in to something that's gonna make somebody a lot of money and royalties. <laughs> yeah. It's very fortuitous timing to take a book that's somewhat obscure. I don't know. Who could it be? It's got to be BMB, Brian Michael oh, Bendis. Yeah, yes, it's like yes. that's pretty much. I'm not even sure there's anybody else on the payroll anymore. I think it's just him and a couple of artists. Be. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it seems like he, we started really high with the Defenders and we uh, came crashing down as we yeah. uh, as time went on. I, you know, it, it's funny. I mean, just the thing to say, it's like, you know, the Defenders is essentially kind of like. Guys that wouldn't fit on the Avengers in a way. Mm-hmm. Although the Hulk, eventually, actually, they all become members of the Avengers. But the Hulk would probably be the. You and I are members of the Avengers. I think, we, I think pretty much, yeah. We, we're deputies. <laughs> we got little little stars <laughs> with an A on them we can put yes. on our vest. But, uh, you know, you know, Namor, Doctor Strange, Silver Surfer, they're kind of of a different power level, of a different bent. And that's what kind of, you know, is kind of funny and cool to put them together. Mm-hmm. If that was the concept, they definitely went away from that concept as they went along, as we'll find yeah. out when we go through these the history of their rotating rosters right here. Yes. Let's see here. We got the uh, the roster here. We have the original three. We have Doctor Strange, the Hulk, and Namor, the Submariner. Uh, some of their early recruits. So we got Clea, which is, uh, was that uh, Doctor Strange's uh, lady love, right? At, for, at the time, yeah. Yeah, uh, the Silver Surfer, the Enchantress, Valkyrie, Hawkeye, Nighthawk, Power Man, Son of Satan, and Yellow Jacket. Wow. Uh, later recruits included the Red Guardian, Hellcat, Patsy Walker, and Devil Slayer. So, but but if you see that list, it is a lot of like kind of misfit toys. Misfits, exactly, from that era, from the from the Bronze Age. So anyway, mm-hmm. just keep that in mind as we as we go along talking about them. Uh, members for a day during this early Defenders run, the guys that just showed up for one issue, or people with. Uh, was Black Goliath, Captain Marvel, at Captain Ultra, Falcon, Havoc, Hercules, Iron Fist, Jack of Hearts, Marvel Man, Nova, Paladin, Polaris, Prowler, Stingray, Tagak the Leopard Lord, 
Torpedo and White Tiger. Did Marvel Man have to say Komoda? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> we have the uh, 1980s team here. This is the Gargoyle, Beast, Overmind. Uh, the new Defenders, when it changed over at issue 125, we have Angel, Beast, Gargoyle, Iceman, Moon Dragon, and Valkyrie. Uh, a fellow, a person who named uh, a person named Cloud joined later, who sort of had a thing for Moon Dragon, and, and really, who wouldn't? Of course. She seems like a very pleasant individual to be around. Didn't didn't they go off to have their own title or something like that after this? I, I don't I, recall. I was reading a little bit about it, but I don't remember. Uh, then we get to the Secret Defenders. We have Doctor Strange, Hulk, Ghost Rider, and Silver Surfer. And they secretly recruited Spider-Man, Wolverine, Dark Hawk, Nomad, Spider-Woman, the Jessica Carpenter one, Namorita, Sleepwalker, Captain America. I mean, Captain America. Yep. I mean, come on. This this is like the Avenger. The first Avenger for Crypt. Anyway. Uh, Scarlet Witch, Thunderstrike, War Machine, North Star, and Nova. And then in Secret Defenders number 12 to 14, we talked about this. The team was comprised of villains, and they were Thanos, Guitar. Uh, Nitro, Rhino, Super Skrull, and Titanium Man. Hmm. And like we said earlier, Doctor Strange does eventually leave the team when he gets folded into the Midnight Suns. This is around issue 15. And uh, names Druid. Is this Doctor Druid? Yeah. I, uh, Druid, actually, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not positive if he was Doctor Druid then. I know he would be that now, but maybe hmm. maybe he got his doctorate in the interim. To be honest with you, <laughs> but it's it's the school. guy you're thinking of. Yeah. It's, it's, yes. Yeah. Uh, now he was a new leader, and uh, over time he would re- he would recruit Luke Cage, Deadpool, Sepulcher, uh, Giant Man, Iron Fist, Archangel, who was formerly Angel, Iceman, U.S. Agent, the uh, kind of the black and white carbon copy of Captain America, yep. John Walker, uh, Dagger from Cloak and Dagger, Deathlock, and Drax the Destroyer. And then there were cursed members of the Order, and these were. Doctor Strange, the Hulk, Namor, the Submariner, Silver Surfer, Hellcat, and Nighthawk. Uh, they recruit Valkyrie, the Samoth- Samantha Parrington version, and Raid Red Raven. Three members of the Order split off to form the Defenders, and this one I found interesting. Uh, they were they recruited Clea, Namorita, She-Hulk, and Ardina. So this is kind of like the Lady Defenders. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what would become the fearless defenders. <laughs> I mean, that's I, you know, that's that's a, a long time before the supposed you know uh, female representation clamor. Hmm. And here we go, a whole team right here. Uh, I'd, cool. I'd forgotten that Red Raven was part of this. That was a that was a Golden Age character, right? I don't know, to be honest with you. Okay, sorry. I remember in an. Early issue of X Men, uh, Angel is flying across the Atlantic Ocean or something uh, under his own power, and uh, and he runs into Red Raven, and uh, I think it was explained in a handy footnote that it was a uh, a Golden Age character or at least a pre Marvel Age character. And I'd forgotten he was part of this. Look at yeah, we have the last Defenders set up by Tony Stark, so we're keeping we're keeping the Defenders weird here, right? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Look at <laughs> this. Blazing Skull, Colossus, I do, I did remember that, right? Yep. Nighthawk and She-Hulk, they would recruit Atlas, Junta, Junta? It's Junta, yeah. Junta. Paladin, Son of Satan, Nighthawk. I mean, I didn't even and know then, there was yeah. a character named Junta. That's kind of a crazy name for a character, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> now, the uh, Deep Defenders during Fear Itself were Doctor Strange, Namor, the Silver Surfer, Lyra, and Loa. And then Defenders Volume 5, the new class that Matt Fraction wrote was Doctor Strange, Namor, Silver Surfer, Hulk, Red She-Hulk, Iron Fist, Black Cat, and Ant-Man. This is like no longer, you know what I mean? This is like just a a, a part of the Avengers at this point. 
Yep. And of course, like we said before, the Defenders to come, I think in about a month or two, maybe it's debuting, is uh, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, just like our Netflix crew that will be showing up. I have know less about that when that will happen but i know it's in the works yeah. and you know whenever i think of teams i think daredevil because daredevil is just such a good team player. i know he's always he's always the first to join a team it's uh mm-hmm. you know well anyway you know the daredevil show was good i'll say that much i know i know you can't watch it but no, no, no. It, it was okay <laughs> now let's uh wrap up uh sal busema here we got sal was one of uh, marvel's most prominent artists through the 70s 80s and 90s and here's a partial list of titles he worked on uncanny x-men Incredible Hulk, Submariner, Daredevil, Iron Man, Conan the Barbarian, Captain America, Thor, Fantastic Four, and many, many more. Though uh, that's pretty much the core Marvel roster right there, except for that one we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago here, that's The Spectacular right. Spider-Man, for which he was the debut artist uh, way back in December 1976. Uh, from 88 through 96, he penciled and mostly inked a, a 100-issue run on The Spectacular Spider-Man. Uh, which includes such story arcs as the Lobo Brothers Gang War with Jerry Conway and The Child Within, written by J.M. DeMatteis, <laughs> featuring the death of longtime Spider-Man supporting character Harry Osborn in issue number 200. Issue 200 was actually very, very good. Yeah. Uh, the Child Within with uh, Vermin was not. You, you've mentioned um, that that, that yes. issue being uh, being worth reading, though, kind of touching. <laughs> Even the even the art, it's 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 almost like Sal goes kind of minimalist in some of the panels, and it's kind of haunting. It's real good stuff. Uh, now, in a, I'm not sure if it was by design, but that's how I took it. Uh, now, in 2002, DiMatteis said, "I really love the two years on Spectacular Spider-Man I wrote with Sal Buscema drawing. Talk about underrated. Sal is one of the best storytellers and a wonderful collaborator. I love that run." And it's pretty well beloved, I think, by Spider-Man fans. Yeah, it's also. aged very well as yeah. also. Uh, in the late 1990s, Sal Buscema worked for DC, penciling Batman, Superman, and Superboy stories, and inking the Creeper, Wonder Woman, and other characters. Of that time, Sal said, "The short time I worked for DC, they were giving me all these young guys that could hardly hold a pencil in their hands and asking me to tweak it. In cases like that, I would definitely put a lot of myself into it and change whatever I felt needed to be changed." Sal returned to Marvel, inking Pat Olaf on Spider-Girl Annual Volume 1, number 1999. This was part of that uh, gimmick thing every they did, right? Yeah, every annual year, was yeah. yeah. In September 1999, and uh, worked briefly for both companies before becoming the regular inker on The Incredible Hulk in 2000, along with other scattered Marvel work. In 2003, Pusema described himself as retired for three years, and I'm still inking jobs for Marvel. His inks fairly well closed out the Spider-Girl series and then did a little more work for DC Comics. Most recently, inked G.I. Joe Annual and the Dungeons & Dragons Forgotten Realms series for IDW Publishing. Busema received the Inkpot Award in 2003, and he received the Hero Initiative Lifetime Achievement Award in September 2013 at the Baltimore Comic Con. And he is still with us. I don't know if he goes to conventions much anymore, but he is out in the world there uh, soaking Mm -hmm. up accolades, so send him along. Certainly, certainly. Uh, now, uh, sort of our main event, yeah. <laughs> Steve Englehart. Uh, now, he wrote The Avengers from issue 105, which was uh, November 1972, to issue 152, October 1976. Uh, this run included The Avengers Defenders War, which ran from 115 through 118, September through December 1973, and Defenders uh, numbers 8 through 11, September, uh, September through December 1973. In the fall of 1972, Englehart and writers uh, Jerry Conway and Len Wein 
mean, they crafted that unofficial crossover we've touched on a couple mm-hmm. times here between Marvel and DC. Each comic would feature Englehart, Conway, and Ween, as well as Ween's first wife, Glynis, interacting with Marvel or DC characters at the Rutland Halloween Parade in Rutland, Vermont. Uh, this began in Amazing Adventures number 16. The story continued in Justice League of America number 103 and would conclude in Thor number 207. Uh, Englehart would explain in 2010, It certainly seemed like a radical concept, and we knew that we had to be subtle, and each story had to stand on its own, but we really worked it out. It's really worthwhile to read those stories back to back to back. It didn't matter to us that one was at DC and two were at Marvel. I think it was us being creative, thinking what we, thinking what we would, thinking what would be really cool to do. Yeah, and it is pretty cool. It's worth, it is. It's worth looking at. Uh, Steve Englehart had a potent run on Doctor Strange originally with artist Frank Brunner or Bruner, which which you uh, later with <laughs> later on with Gene Colan in Marvel premiere number three to fourteen, July nineteen seventy two to March nineteen seventy four. Doctor Strange's mentor, the Ancient One, dies, and Strange himself becomes the new Sorcerer Supreme. This was uh, co-created. He he co-created recurring villain Shuma Gorath with Brunner. In Marvel premiere number fourteen, Englehart and Brunner created multi-issue storyline in which a sorcerer named Sisineg, which is Genesis spelled backwards, very smart, mm. uh, goes back through history collecting all magical en- energies until he reaches the beginning of the universe, becomes all-powerful, and creates it anew, leaving Strange to wonder whether this was paradoxically the original creation. Editor in chief Stan Lee, seeing the issue after publication, ordered Englehart and Brunner to re- print a retraction saying this was not God, but a God, so as to avoid offending religious readers. Now, this is great. The writer and artist concocted a fake letter from a fictitious minister praising the story and mailed it to Marvel from Texas. Marvel unwittingly printed the letter and dropped the retraction order. <laughs> Steve Englehart says. We had heard that Stan was unhappy or uncertain about the whole God storyline. There was a saying around the Marvel bullpen that Stan could be deluged with a po- with a postcard. So I, so being young and creative, we thought, let's send him a letter. I lived in California, so I was going to have to transfer planes in Texas when I was going home to my family. So I thought, I'll write this letter as a pastor and say I enjoyed that story. Whether that deluged Stan, we don't know, but the problem was solved. We were really trying to go new places every time, so we didn't really want anyone telling us we couldn't. And uh, Frank Bruno would say, uh, we had just completed Marvel premiere number 14. Well, I had just completed the pencils, most of the art, but for some reason or another, nobody took notice of what we were doing. When the book came out, Stan finally got a hold of it, and I don't know, somebody pointed it out, or he read it, and he wrote us a letter saying, we can't do God. You're going to have to print in the letters column a retraction saying that this is not the God, this is just a God. Steve and I said, oh, come on. That's the whole point of the story. If we did that retraction of God, this is meaningless. So Steve happened to be on his way to Texas for something. This is when we were in California, and we cooked up this plot. We wrote a letter from a Reverend Billingsley in Texas, a fictional person, saying that he was one of the cho- that one of the children in his parish brought him the comic book and he was astounded and thrilled by it and he said wow this is the best comic book i've ever read and we signed it <laughs> reverend so and so austin texas and when steve was in texas he mailed the letter so it had the proper postmark then we got a phone call from roy and he said hey about that retraction i'm going to send you a letter and instead of a retraction i want you to print this letter and it was our letter we printed our letter <laughs> And I did. I looked for that letter. I could not find it anywhere online. But That's surprising, isn't it? Yeah, I know. I, I really was hoping. Um, if anyone's got this comic or they know the contents, please uh, drop us a line. Let us know. Sure. I, I'd love to see what that exact uh, 
letter said. Now, Steve Englehart has admitted to taking LSD frequently during this time in the 70s. He says, uh, we'd rampage around New York City. There was one night when a bunch of us, including Jim Starlin, went out on the town. We partied all day, and we did some more acid, and then roamed around town until dawn and saw all sorts of amazing things, most of which ended up in Master of Kung Fu, which Jim and I were doing at the time. Englehart and artist Starlin co-created the character Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, though they only worked on the initial issues. Now, Engelhart and Gusema had a celebrated run on Captain America from issues 153 through 167, that is September of 72 through November 73. Uh, they reconciled the existence of Captain America and sidekick Bucky in Marvel's 1950s precursor, Atlas Comics, as an anomaly that had been ignored since Captain America's 1964 reintroduction to Marvel after having been suspended in suspended animation since 1945. Uh, Engelhart said they were a different Cap and Bucky, so no big whoop. Yeah. That, wasn't it? It was the uh, the commie smasher one. Yep, that's something yeah. like this. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, I don't remember the name they used, but it was a different. It wasn't Steve Rogers. Um, and this was also the arc where Steve Rogers became disillusioned with America, and briefly became nomad, a man without a country. Yeah. Uh, following Jerry Conway's promotion to editor in chief in March 1976, Englehart had a falling out with Marvel. He says. Conway was a young guy in, the, in those days. He basically said, I'm the editor at Marvel. I can do whatever I want to do. I want to write the Avengers, and I want to write the Defenders. So he just took them. He took the Avengers away from me, and he took the Defenders away from Steve Gerber. We said, this is not the collegial... Collegial? I don't know. That's what it says. <laughs> collegial atmosphere that we'd been working under. I quit. I got into Marvel because of the whole bullpen, the whole ambiance uh, that you could see from the reader's side. When I came in the door, it's exactly like that inside. Marvel was a wonderful place to work. This was a big change, this kind of I have power mentality. Yeah, but uh, Jerry Conway has a different take on the matter. Uh, he says, "Go figure." Yeah, uh, and you know we're just, <laughs> we're going to see some of these conflicting opinions as we go on from here. Um, Jerry Conway says the Avengers was perennially late to the printer, which was costing Marvel a lot of money. I asked Steve for a commitment to have the, his next plot for the Avengers in by Friday, so that if he didn't make it, I'd have time over the weekend to pl to play a replacement issue. When the plot did not arrive, I called him, and he denied he'd ever made any commitment to delivery by Friday. As far as he was concerned, artist George Perez didn't need the plot till Monday, so he wasn't going to deliver a plot until Monday. When I told him this wasn't what we'd agreed, so I was going to write a replacement plot myself, Steve responded that a fill-in story would ruin the overall storyline, and he accused me of trying to take over the book. He said if I insisted on doing a fill-in, he'd quit. Well, if I were going to have any authority as an editor, I had to do what I said I'd do, so Steve quit the Avengers. All right. Uh, hmm. Englehart planned to leave comics altogether and concentrate on writing novels, but DC Comics had other ideas. DC Comics publisher Jeanette Kahn persuaded him to come on over to DC. His only previous credited work for the company had been scripting the Batman story Night of the Stalker in Detective Comics number 439. That was February to March 1974. Uh, Englehart agreed to fix Justice League of America, but said he would only work there for one year. He wrote Justice League of America number 139 to 146 and 149 to 150 with artist Dick Dillon. This included another unofficial crossover between DC and Marvel in issue 142 by re reworking his character Mantis into the DC Universe as a character named Willow. And he also brought Hawkwoman onto the team, which was probably a good addition. Um, sure. 
Steve also wrote an eight-issue arc of Batman stories in Detective Comics number 469 to 476 with pencilers Walt Simelson and Marshall Rogers. This is the much-celebrated Rupert Thorne, Hugo Strange, Joker Fish story that brought Silver St. Cloud in as a love interest for Bruce Wayne. Englehart believes this run was adapted into the 1989 Tim Burton-directed Batman film, for which he's uncredited. I think there may have been some inspiration there, but there's not really... I mean, I guess the Joker makeup, right? Yeah. That's the idea, sort of like the Joker fish, but I, I don't see yeah, it. But You figure a Batman movie would probably be inspired by, by Batman comics. I would think so, yeah. I think I'd... Maybe not these days, but uh, <laughs> maybe in the 80s. You yes. got a point. <laughs> anyway, uh, of this run, Paul Levitt said, arguably fans' best-loved version of Batman in the mid-1970s. Writer Steve Englehart and Penciler Rogers... Rogers's detective run featured an unambiguously homicidal Joker in noirish, moodily rendered stories that evoked the classic Kane Robinson era. Uh, it's hard to hard to believe that only ran, that was only eight issues. It's unbelievable, yeah. It, and it really is monumental. I, I, it's one of my. It favorite looms runs. large, yeah. It does, and and it, it 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 you know affected comics for a long time. Pretty much right up to to Crisis was still being affected sure. by it. Uh, it, it, you know, there was a trade called Strange Apparitions that collected. If you got a few hundred bucks, almost all of them. But yeah, I don't know why they, they haven't reprinted <laughs> it. Now it's become like several hundred dollars. But if you happen yep. to be standing in the store the day it was there, you got it for twenty bucks. Mm-hmm. It's worth it's worth it. But yeah, hopefully they'll uh, they'll do something and re-release that because it's really a cool storyline. Yes, I, I haven't read it because I can't get my hands on it. And I, I can't bring myself to read it digitally. Yeah. So it's no, or uh, pay, one of these Or days. pay 200 bucks for it, which I wouldn't recommend either. Yeah. No, <laughs> <laughs> no uh, Engelhardt temporarily left comics at this juncture. He moved to Europe before uh, his first issue of Detective was even published. Uh, during this time, he wrote a fantasy occult novel, The Point Man. It was published uh, September 1st, 1981 by Dell Publishing Company and would be later repub- republished in 2010 by Tor Books. Now, uh, a 25-page Englehart Rogers story featuring Madame Xanadu, originally commissioned for Doorway to Nightmare, sat in inventory for years before being published as the one-shot Madame Xanadu in 1981. Uh, this is DC's first attempt at marketing comics specifically to the direct market, uh, you know, fans and collector mentality. Yeah. Uh, that book is available in most 25-cent bins. Oh, days. yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> it's interesting that it was this book. Like, he's not even writing comics. He's not even in the no, country. he's probably. away. Yeah, yeah not even... And here he still has work coming out that's how much uh, much he had cranked away i guess yes and then in uh, 1983 marvel's creator-owned imprint epic comics published uh, coyote it's a series that he had created at eclipse comics with with rogers in collaboration with artist steve lealoha and later Chaz trog trog Truog? Truog, I would say. Truog. And Todd McFarlane. Uh, have you ever read coyote i have not i, I know of it but i never read it I, I saw an issue of it. I, I have a. I probably have like the first five or six issues, but I did see an issue with a badger on the cover. A badger that from first comics. Oh, really? That I think it's Mike Barron. Is that? But I thought that was very strange to see a uh, to see a character from a from an indie book with in a in a you know de facto yeah. Marvel yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, that is. I wonder. It was kind of fast and loose in those days. I guess. Of they course. Were, they were really trying to curry. Uh, creator's the favor indie, And this is kind yeah. of this, the beginning of that Because of the direct market Suddenly you're not buying a character You're buying a creator Certainly. Uh, But anyway, that's for a much longer podcast Some other day uh, <laughs> Englehart returned to mainstream Marvel Comics Later that decade With stints on West Coast Avengers Then 
the second vision in the Scarlet Witch, Scarlet Witch limited series with artist Richard Howell, Silver Surfer again with Rogers, and Fantastic Four, during which editorial disputes led to his using the pseudonym John Harkness. And we're going to get to that. He had first used his name on the last issue of Mist, on his last issue of Mister Miracle. Uh, Englehart was going to be the regular writer of Daredevil in 1986, but left after only one issue due to an editorial conflict. Editorial conflict. Oh, well, how did that happen? Uh, Jim <laughs> Shooter, then the editor in chief, he said. The reason the Harbringer kids were in a coma for months on the moon was because I trusted Steve, Eng Steve Englehart to write a book, Exo Manowar, and he ignored our tight continuity to the point that I had to have months pass for the Harbring Harbinger kids to make our planned and solicited crossover work. When I caught what he'd done, and there was no time to fix it in this book, so I had to make adjustments in other books. I confronted Steve about it, and he informed me he deliberately ignored continuity obligations, that he would do whatever he damn well pleased, and that I would have to adjust to his plans, not vice versa. So I fired him. Catching up with the calendar or synchronizing between titles doesn't have to be that awkward. Now, Englehart rebuts, it's completely false, no semblance of truth whatsoever. And I'm really amazed that Jim said that, if you've quoted him accurately. As I've said on many occasions, and I say again now, he asked me to write XO for him in his style, and told me that when I started my own book, Shadow Man, I could write it my way. When I first wrote Shadow Man, he came to me and said he was really sorry, but he wanted all the books to sound as if they were written by the same guy, and he could not let me write Shadow Man my way. He also said, and this is the important point, that it was okay with him if I told people what had happened because he had broken his word and felt bad about it. That's it. There is, there was never any other, at any time, any talk of ignoring continuity in EXO or any problems other than not sounding like Jim. And in light of this rather noble mea culpa at the time, I find it hard to believe that he's saying anything different now. If he really did say that, words fail. Well, Jim Shooter, he's not one to let people have the last word, and he was willing to back himself up. And he said uh, after that that the big, biggest single problem with Marvel editorial in those days was lateness. There was a steady stream of unscheduled reprints and outright misissues that caused tremendous problems, cost a great deal of money, and ultimately severely impacted sales. Engelhart was a major contributor to the problem. I believe that he was assigned three books a month, but he rarely delivered even two. One of his assigned titles was The Avengers, a monthly. There was a year, 1975, during which Engelhart delivered only six or eight Avengers scripts, meaning that the rest of that year's issues were reprint or non-existent. Remember the dreaded deadline, Doom? It struck frequently back then. Engelhart was supposed to deliver the script for Avengers... Hmm, 150, I think? It was a landmark issue. The script didn't arrive by the date promised, which was months late already, by the way. Jerry Conway asked me to dialogue the issue overnight. I did. The issue with my dialogue went into lettering and production the next day. That led to a rather dramatic phone conversation between Engelhardt, who lived in California, and Jerry. Though, though his office door was closed, those of us on... In the big editorial room outside could hear clearly Jerry's side of it. Jerry tried to reason with Engelhart, and Jerry was as sane, reserved, res respectful, and nice as he could be under the circumstances. Engelhart was obviously irate. Make that enraged. I think that's when Engelhart quit, or soon thereafter. Editorial policies had nothing to do with it unless you consider deliver the damn thing already an editorial policy. 
So two different sides of the table, two different points of view on Stephen Englehart's uh, work here. Mm-hmm. Um, at that same time, Steve Englehart wrote D- DC Comics Green Lantern, overseeing the title's name change to Green Lantern Corps. This is also a run that I love a lot. And Green, uh, yeah, and he wrote the DC Weekly crossover series Millennium, uh, January to February 1988, which I don't really less love great. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, in 1992, he co-created the Ultraverse Comics universe for Malibu. He wrote Nightman and the superhero team The Strangers. Nightman would eventually be adapted for television as Nightman with no space. One word. <laughs> yeah, one word. Uh, and it would run for two seasons. Uh, first uh, airing uh, September 15th, 1997 running through May 17th, 1999. And it's as cheesy as you could figure. That's all right. Two seasons, though. He probably did all right on it. I'm sure he did. Yeah. Uh, now, for Claypool Comics, he wrote the Supernatural series Phantom of Fierce City, 1 through 12, May of 93 through May of 95. Uh, throughout the remainder of the 90s, Steve wrote a series of young adult novel, uh, books for Avon, including the DNAgers series. The, he wrote this with his wife, Terry. Also, the Countdown series. We have a Countdown to Flight was selected by NASA for its school curriculum on the Wright Brothers. Cool. Um, yeah, and, and early the, the early 2000s, Englehart would return to comics briefly. Uh, in 2005, he reunited with Marshall Rogers on the miniseries Batman Dark Detective. That's uh, elements, great. it wasn't that great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, elements of which were adapted into the Batman film The Dark Knight. Um, he also wrote a screenplay for the unproduced film Mayorka. That sounds Majorca? fine. I would. I was gonna say sure. Majorca, but I, I have no idea. Majorca sounds okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the screenplay was published as a book by Black Coat Press in 2004. Uh, Steve is admitted to writing the novel Hellstorm in the Talon Force series under the pseudonym Cliff Garnet in 2013. Uh, in his personal life, Steve married uh, Marie Therese Terry Beach. In 1975, and they have a pair of sons, Alex and Eric. Yeah, and that is uh, putting a pin in the story of Steve Englehart, although I have a feeling we will be seeing and probably hearing about him more. Uh, I, you're right. Yeah, well, you know, he doesn't seem to have been uh, put his uh, pen down or his uh, whatever word processor away yet. And uh, interesting guy, you know, definitely a very principled guy, can work in a variety of genres and seems to be somewhat of a vagabond in, like, you know, he doesn't mind cruising on to the next thing, but it, it was it was really a pleasure to go through some of his interviews, and he, he is very free, I think, with his POV on things, so that's... Absolutely. Uh, that always helps us out when we try to flesh out some of these bios. I don't know what... I guess people don't really interview the artists as much either. That's why they don't know, just don't have a lot to say, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You don't get as many quotables from these people. Um... <laughs> But if you have any uh, secret information about Steve Englehart or something you want to tell us about the Defenders or you have the copy for that uh, fake letter they sent from a Texas pastor, mm-hmm. uh, we'd like you to please write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Uh, we also, this is something I haven't been mentioning, but we do also have social media presence. And I believe if you follow our social media, you should get updates on every single time a uh, show is uploaded uh, on our RSS feed. Uh, Chris yes. Chris has been doing work during the week to up, to upload our past episodes, mm-hmm. so it's it's worthwhile if you want to hear other episodes and our other series, which was weird or is weird comics history, where we just kind of do more long form history stuff. To join join up at uh, Facebook, we're at, at both at Weird Comics History or at Cosmic T Mill. Uh, yeah. On Twitter, we are at Cosmic T Mill. 
And like I said, you write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Um, and you can find our writings every week on uh, weirdsciencedccomics.com. Follow me on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And uh, every week I tell you to go check out Chris's personal blog. Chris is on infiniteearths.com, where he reviews a new DC comic every day of the week, seven days a week, too. This is not a weekday mm-hmm. venture. And boy, you've been you've been spinning out some wild ones lately. You know, you got to get deep in that garage. You know, I don't know what's going on. Real deep in that garage, yeah. <laughs> I saw I saw one today. I, I, what was what was the one today? Uh, Advent Rising. Advent Rising. Where did that come from? Boy, oh boy. <laughs> It's a video game tie-in, and uh, it could have been worse. I, I clicked on the image. I was like, what is this? I saw the DC logo. I almost didn't believe it. I was like, this is not going to be a DC logo. It looks very strange, folks. And that's what you will definitely see over there. But you also, I also saw that you did uh, you did a Rebirth title last week, didn't you? What was it, Aquaman? I did Aquaman, yes. And, yeah, you you are doing you know what I mean? It's they really run the gamut. It's it's a great it's a great look at DC's work going from, I mean theoretically you haven't done any in the in the thirties, but you would if you no. had you got your hands on them, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, you know if someone wants to let them into the uh, vacuum chamber or something, you can go <laughs> handle a copy of Action Comics number one. Um, but you know yeah you you got to go check it out. Chris is on InfiniteEarth.com. It also kind of acts as a uh, way station and a clearinghouse for some of the work that we do on the podcast. So certainly consider the two, you know, with to be symbiotic and you should definitely give it a look. But I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? I think that's it. Well, until next week, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill defensively. It's a dirty, filthy job, but it's got a-